Genesis 2, 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man, <clears throat> formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the, water the garden, and there it divided... <clears throat> and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishom. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pray with me, friends. Lord, even now as we embark on this adventure, walking through this chapter, make us able to hear, believe, and surrender to your word. We know your way is best. Help us keep that in the forefront and help us follow it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Last week I asked a question that I think should still be part of our thinking today. If your car was broken down, whose advice on fixing it would you be wise to take? Should you listen to a person who knows very little about cars? Or should you listen to the engineer who designed the car and who knows every part of the car inside and out? Which is better? What would you say? The engineer or somebody who can't fix his own car? 
Going with the engineer, right? All right. You know that's the wisest choice. And when it comes to questions about life, friends, we need to listen to the designer of our lives if we wish to live and have joy. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Well, our study today is going to continue to take us a step further in knowing how to glorify and enjoy the Lord in our lives. And particularly, we're going to look at what it means to be human, what it means to be men, and what it means to be women and husbands and wives. We're looking at God's design for us and our humanity, our gender, our marriages, and our sexuality. Now, we established a few points of truth over the past few weeks that I want to remind us of So what have we learned? Here's some things we've learned. We learned that God's word reveals perfect truth in Psalm 19. We learned that God knows us perfectly, Psalm 139. We learned that God is good, Psalm 139 and other places. We learned that God owns everything because God is the creator of everything, Genesis 1.1. We know that people have value because they're created in the image of God, Genesis 1.26 and 27. God created us with gender. Genesis 1:27. Men and women have equal value before the Lord. Genesis 1:27. God created marriage. Genesis 1:27. Marriage generally results should result in children. Genesis 1:28. All of those concepts came from the preparatory work in the Psalms and our look at Genesis chapter 1. And what we need to be asking ourselves is, will the things that we learned in those types of lessons continue as we walk further into Scripture? Will those thoughts be upheld? And what other truths does God want to teach us as he continues to unveil to us what it means to be men and women, husbands and wives? So I want us to follow a similar pattern today to what we did last week. We're going to look through the passage in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll do our best to unpack it Though I have to tell you, there's no way we're unpacking it all because this is not a a straight, full exposition of this chapter. We'd be here for weeks on Genesis 2 if it was a full exposition of this chapter. But we will look through it to see what we can see, and then we'll look more particularly at the things that we need to take with us from the passage so that we develop a biblical theology of marriage and of being human in general. So we better get started or we will never get finished. Anyone who's ever flown can tell you that things look very different from the sky. Yes? Up in the sky, thousands of feet up, you can get a beautiful picture of the lay of the land. You can see there's a whole forest over here. There's a desert over here. There's a lake over here. There's a mountain over here. But you know what? From up in a plane, have you ever read somebody's mailbox number? Probably not, right? And if you have, that's creepy because that means you've got some tech I don't have, and I'm not sure about that. But if you want detail, if you want to read the, the, the number on somebody's house, where do you need to be? You need to be down on the ground, right? You've got to get close up to see that kind of stuff. Well, think of Genesis chapter 1 as a flyover of creation. You learn of God creating the world in six days, and you learn about the land and the sky and the plants and the animals and the birds and the trees and the squirrels and all that. And you even see that God created people in his image. But... You don't get a lot of detail as to how God did what he did when he created the people. It just said he made man in his own image, and the image of God he created, and male and female he created them. Well, Genesis chapter 2 is going to show us a little more ground-level detail of the creation of humanity. If we studied it, verses 4, and six, four through 6, or if you don't have time to do the, this afternoon, 
we would see that we are revisiting the creation story. It is day number six. It is before the fall of man. Everything is very much perfect. And what did God do during this perfect time of creation? Chapter 2, chapter two verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So here we see the actual creation of the first man, not just a sweep past it as we see in 127, but a description of it. God formed Adam. God shaped the man. And it's intimate the way the language is written. It's very personal. God is spirit. Does God have a body? No. Other than Jesus who took on flesh later, yes, Jesus has a body. But God does not have a body. God the Father doesn't have a body. God the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. And at this time in history, no part of the Holy Trinity, no person of the Trinity had a body. But here we use language that gives us the image, the picture of a sculptor fashioning clay. The man does not, what you need to recognize here, arise from the animal kingdom. He is not merely a descendant of the apes. He is not a random mutation of molecules. The man is the work of art of God. And this fits very well what we saw in chapter 1 when the Lord told us that he would create man in his own image. God would do something unique in the formation and creation of man that separates humanity from all the rest of creation. You are different than the critters. You know that, right? And God breathed the breath of life into the man that he made. Again, God has no body. God breathes no breath. Not until Jesus, God the Son, takes on human flesh. But God chose to use the word breath here to indicate what he did to change the man from an inanimate sculpture to an alive person. And we'll see from the rest of this chapter, God is really being specific with us when he speaks of having made only the man here in verse 7. Later in the chapter, we see the formation of the woman. The person that God made here in Genesis 2-7 is a man. He is male. He has X and Y chromosomes. And though it may surprise you, the fact that God made the man first is actually important to help us understand the role the man will play in God's design. We'll draw those conclusions as we go a little further. Verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God made a man, we saw that in verse 7, and now we see that God planted a garden. And the garden would have been beautiful, on a hill in an elevated spot on the mountain of God. And it was full of all sorts of beautiful and fruitful trees. Now, stop for a moment with me and think about the goodness and kindness of God right here. We see the character of God here. God didn't have to make the garden beautiful. He could have created in monochrome. How many of you remember an old monochrome computer monitor? You do? No? One of you do. Some of the Facebook people probably do. 
black and white, no color, just shades of gray. God could have made all shapes in the world look like an old 8-bit Nintendo game, blocky and without any curves. Now, you all know, Owen, you know, Josiah knows, people can make some cool-looking things in Minecraft, can't they? You can make neat-looking things. But we should be grateful to God that God chose to build a world with shapes other than square. Aren't you glad about that? Would it make your car work better, you think, right? God's good. God's good. Well, in the garden, the man had plenty of food, great variety of food, by the way, lots of different kinds of trees to eat from. He was not forced to eat only one kind of food over and over and over again. God gave the man taste, and God gave the man the ability not only to eat, but also to enjoy the food that he ate. And that's a gift from God. That's part of how we give God glory. That's part of how we enjoy God, by enjoying God's creation and thanking God for what God has made. When you taste good food and it really makes you happy and you tell God, God, thank you for making something like this, you honor the Lord. You do what you were made to do. Now, little side note, no matter what Sharon Claire says to me, when it says that God planted every tree there that's good for food, I just have to assume that Brussels sprouts, mushrooms, and olives had to come into being after the fall. That's all I got. Are you disagreeing with me? Sharon, she's disagreeing with me right over there. That's rough. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've heard some people argue against broccoli, but I like broccoli, so I'm sure it was in the garden. Anyway, we don't know. God also highlights for us in his holy word two trees in the garden, right? In the middle of the garden, they're special. We see the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to talk about what they are in a moment. Verses 10 through 14 describe a little of the geography of the land, right? The garden was irrigated by waters that flowed up from the ground, flowed through Eden, flowed through the garden, and then they flowed out of the garden to form four separate rivers, twisting and turning through a beautiful land. And it tells us that the land around those rivers was full of gold and gems, and, and one of those things may actually be more of a sweet-smelling spice. See, God didn't just make beauty in trees, guys. God made beauty in minerals. God made beauty in, in smells and in stones. You all believe that God can make beauty in stones, don't you? Any wife got an engagement ring on right now? Just saying. And I'll remind you again, God didn't have to give us treats like this. This is God being good, God being kind. So now we're at verse 14, heading into 15. We've got creation, we've got a man, we've got a garden. What's coming next? Because what comes next is significant. Verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall surely, or you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God put the man in the garden, and God gave the man the first job. He is to work 
and keep the garden. That tells you something about being human, by the way. We were not created to be lazy. We were not created for pure leisure. We're not created to do nothing. We were created by God with work in mind. That's good for us. Folks, we're supposed to do things. We're supposed to make things, to shape things, to direct things, to organize things, to tend to things. We're supposed to keep things going and make things better. We are to be creative. We are to be artistic. We are to work, and that gives us joy, and that honors God. That's good news, isn't it? God has given us a purpose, and we should be happy that we have one. And it is so good of God to have given us a job. It's so good of God to show us how to find joy by honoring him. And in verse 16, for the very first time in the Bible, we hear God issue a command. Before, it's been a blessing, but never really a full-fledged command. But here it is. First, God tells the man something very positive. You are allowed to eat of any tree in this garden, but there's one exception. You can go anywhere you want, but not there. You can touch anything you want, but not this. One single exception. And it's a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it is off limits to the man. If the man eats of that tree, death will be the result. So what do we think? Was this a poisonous tree? I don't think so. Nothing in the garden was bad. Was it a supernatural tree that would impart knowledge to the man were he to eat of it? It is possible because you know what, folks? This is in the time when God was creating the universe and doing God only can do things. But you know, it's even possible that the tree has no special properties in it whatsoever, but the tree was off limits. God said, this is my tree. You can't touch this tree. If you eat this fruit, it will be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it will kill you. Because see, God said to the man, don't eat this tree. Now, did the man need the knowledge of good? What do you think? Or did he already know good? He knew God, didn't he? He knew creation. He knew good. The only kind of knowledge he would gain from eating that tree is the knowledge of evil. But what is evil? Evil is disobedience to the Lord. How do you get evil? You disobey the Lord by eating of the tree. That was the only option Adam had to disobey God, was to eat of that tree. So it's possible that this tree would give the knowledge of evil because only in committing a sin could man eat its fruit. And if he were to do that, he would violate the command of God and he would learn all the ugliness of evil and pain and shame and death. By the way, stop and think of how tempting that would be to you. I'll give you a tree, and if you would take hold of it, it will give you the knowledge of hurt, of pain, of sorrow, of cancer, of viruses, of abuse, of scandal, of politics. Would that tree tempt you? You think it wouldn't, but I know human nature better. It would in a weird, sad way. 
I mentioned earlier that the man's being created first matters. I want you to notice what's happened right here. This is going to be important to us in what we're studying. God gave the man a job that the man was to perform. The man's job was to work and keep the garden. That is his responsibility, and that responsibility was not given to anybody else. Keep that in mind. Similarly, God gave the man the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God did not express that command to anybody else either. The man is responsible for the obedience, for obedience to the Lord here. God has entered a relationship with the man. It looks like, and many would argue is, a covenant. What's God done? God has given the man a place to live. God's given him life. God's given him goodness. God's given him provision. God's given him a purpose. God gave the man a job to do, to tend and keep the garden. Which, by the way, those are words that are used of the priests in the tabernacle later in the years when they, when they guard and protect the tabernacle. Same words as tend and keep the garden, which is interesting. And God has given the man one command to obey, one negative to avoid. If the man obeys the command and does not eat of the single tree, one tree forbidden him, he will live. If the man disobeys God and casts off God's authority, there will be consequences. And the man who is presently alone in the garden, there's no other human being in the garden, the man in that garden bears the weight of this covenantal relationship. He is the one who will either keep the commands of God or he will not. He has the responsibility to keep the command or not. And though we don't see it all spelled out here, this man is going to sit in that garden as a representative of all of the human beings who will come after him. Think about it like a king who makes choices that impact an entire nation. Have you ever thought about it that way? If, if, if the king signs a treaty, does the treaty just bind the king or the whole nation? What do you think? The whole nation, right? The king has the authority, the king has the job and the responsibility, and if he signs the treaty, the treaty doesn't just bind the king, it binds the nation. Adam, like a king, represents us as a people group, as a nation. His choices in the garden will affect all of humanity. That's his responsibility. Now up to this point in the book of Genesis, if you read from chapter 1 to here, you'll see that God has repeatedly said that everything is good, good, good. And when God created humanity in his image, God said it was very good. It was super good. Keep that in mind when you read the next verse, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the first not good in the Bible. It is not good for the man to be alone. Who notices it? God. The man is perfectly content. By the way, this is true of a lot of men I know. Obliviously, perfectly content, not realizing what they need. Ladies, have you ever seen that before? Just asking. Why is it not good for the man to be alone? Back in chapter 1, God, when we saw the overview of creation, 
we saw that God was going to have the people he created be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. You know a man who's alone can't do that? Doesn't work that way. That's not how we multiply. He needs more than himself to reproduce. But there's probably more going on than just the command to have children here. The man has a job to do, and it's a big job, and he needs help. He's not designed to do the whole job of working and keeping the garden all by himself. He needs somebody who can join him in the task. And God says he's going to make the man a helper fit for him. God is going to make a helper for the man that is exactly the right kind of helper that a man needs. And remember, who designed human beings? Wake up and tell me, who designed human beings? If God's the designer, he's the one who knows, right? He knows what we need. He knows who we are. He's going to make exactly what the man needs to be the helper the man needs to do the work God has given him to do. And this helper is going to be just right. And if you let yourself think otherwise, that God didn't do it the right way, then you are saying that God is not the perfect designer. And remember, friends, this is God's idea. The concept of man having a helper is God's design, God's plan to form God's institution, which is the family, to lay out God's institution, which is marriage. God owns the universe he made. God owns this institution of marriage and family. And you and I do not have the right to fight with God about how it should be done. Now, before God makes the helper for the man... He gives a little object lesson so that we can see how important this is. 19 to 20, great little two-verse section here. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So as part of his job in the garden, the man has to name the animals. Giving the names to the animals indicates authority that the man has over them. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that section giving us the overview said human beings are supposed to rule over all the animals. Here the man starts to do it. He starts to rule over the animals. How does he rule over the animals? He gives them their name. Would you not love to have seen what this scene looked like? It's day six of creation. Everything is bright and shiny and new. And the Lord brings a little parade of critters in front of Adam and it's his job to identify and give a name with authority to everything. With his own authority given to him by God, he is to declare what every critter is. And whatever Adam called them, God said that was its name. So his authority was upheld. And though the man may not have noticed it, God was making it plain that among the animals there was no helper found for the man God has a plan for man's helper and it's not going to be found in the animal kingdom because man is immeasurably different than the animals. The man is not a higher functioning ape or perhaps a functioning ape would have worked for him. But no, he is something else altogether. Then comes 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man 
And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So now, not only have we seen the first of many things, we see the first anesthesia. We see the first surgery. God put the man into a deep sleep, and he took a bit from the man's body. The word we see here translated rib, and that may be what the word means, but generally in the Old Testament, it's simply translated one's side. I don't know what he did, but God somehow reached into the man's body and took some of the stuff of which the man was made, and then he closed up that spot in a perfect healing. And no, men do not have one less rib than women. Don't think that. That's crazy. The Bible tells us that God used the material he took from the man to make a woman. And the word there for make is a word that means to build, to construct. God, the perfect designer, perfectly fashions, perfectly constructs, perfectly builds a partner and helper for the man. And God brings the woman to the man. This is a glorious moment. It's a beautiful kindness from God. So much of this fits what we saw in chapter 1, right? God brought a woman to the man. She's like him, but she's different from him. She's made in the image of God just like the man was, but she's not taken from the dirt as was the man. Notice this. God did not bring the man several women. Could he have? Sure. The right design, though, was one woman for the one man. God did not bring the man another man. He needed a helper who was different, able to help him fulfill the blessed call to be fruitful and multiply. Now, there's no sin in the world at this point, but there are still needs. And the woman God has designed to be different from the man, she will strengthen him by being his perfect complement. Do you know the word complement? And when I say that word, I'm not using the word complement meant as if I give you a compliment on how pretty your new shoes are. Complement is something that is different and fills in your gaps. Any baseball fans in the room? Praise God, there should be. On a baseball team, you need big, strong power hitters and you need quick little infielders. They're different. But if you have both of them on your team, the team is better. Um, any video gamers in the room? Okay. Well, what do you got? If you want to build an adventuring party in a video game or a role play game, you need different people with different skills to make a strong party. You need a big, strong fighter and a sneaky little hider. And you need some dude that's really good with a bow and another good who would make a, another dude would make a good doctor. That's how to have a good, strong party. The differences in the party fill in each other's gaps, and they make the party better. They are right compliments. When God brought the woman to the man, he designed a perfect helper, a true compliment. She would have strengths that the man would not have. He would have strengths that she would not have. And together, they would complete one another for the glory of God. Then verse 23. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. When the man sees this perfect helper fit for him being brought to him by God, he breaks forth in song. Unlike the animals, this woman is like the man, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. If the Bible wanted to leave the door open for man to have evolved from the animal kingdom, this statement is nonsense, but it's not. Man is different from the animals. And finally, here, for the very first time, we have somebody on the planet like the man, but different from the man. She is perfect for the man, and he expresses it. Get this. You see the short lines again? This is the first human song sung. He breaks out into song because he's excited about this. And once we've seen this take place, the Lord inspires Moses, who wrote this book, to give us a couple comments that'll be helpful to us. Look at 24 to 25, we're almost done, so if you're asleep, wake back up. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So because all this took place, Moses tells us, marriage is gonna happen. Again, I remind us, marriage is God's property. It is God's design. It is not yours or mine to redefine. What happens in marriage? First, a man and a woman leave their respective families. Now, they might actually unite and still live in the house with the in-laws. But the new relationship that is formed when the man and woman unite, it is a new family. The husband's commitment to his wife and the wife's commitment to her husband, that takes priority over any previous relationships. And it says the couple will hold fast to or cling to or... Where are my King James people? I know I've got a couple of you back there. What's the word? Cleave to. Did you like that word? It, it has to do with attaching. Which is funny, cleave is one of those words that, that in English means either to completely separate two things or to totally attach two things. Has has dual meanings, kind of like flammable or inflammable. Um, it has to do with attaching something. It has to do with these people, this, this man and this woman, they will, he'll leave his father and mother, he will attach to his wife. And it's the kind of attaching that God has designed, and it's not supposed to be broken. And this attaching cannot be broken without damage being done. I once heard it illustrated, by the way, with a... You ever buy press board stuff? Lots of different types of wood, not lots of different pieces get all smooshed and glued together. You can't take that stuff apart. You take it apart, you hurt both sides. Man and a woman united are supposed to stay stuck together. Next, we see that the couple is going to become one flesh, and there are many meanings here, of course. On the surface, you can see that this is a reference to sexual intimacy in the marriage. In this act, two people who were separate become one in an expression of love and trust. But even deeper than the physical... The two people used to be separate individual units, and they have come together in marriage to form one new unit. They have formed a family. He's not his own. She's not her own. They are now one. And the final comment that Moses makes in this section is that the couple was naked, but they were not ashamed. There was nothing to be ashamed of. 
They had no knowledge of sin. They had done no wrong. No wrong was even possible to happen at this point. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to fear. They were utterly safe. Their relationship in each other's presence, even with no covering whatsoever, was perfect, open, honest, kind, giving. Again, safe. Marriage is supposed to be safe. What God has done here is beautiful, friends. It's loving and it's kind and it's where the family comes from. And as we get ready to wrap up, I want to take just a few points away from this passage for us to keep track of as we're learning what the Bible teaches us from beginning to end about marriage and family and humanity and gender and sexuality and all the rest. So, this time, I'm going to start at the end and work my way up the chapter, okay? If you ask me why, the answer is, I don't know. It just sounded fun when I wrote it. Look at the end of the chapter. 24 and 25, what do we learn? God designed marriage as the place, the institution for human sexuality uh, to be expressed. The man and woman were together to be one flesh, and there was no fear and there was no shame. Marriage, biblical marriage between one man and one woman is the only place where our sexuality can be expressed in accord with God's design and in obedience to his commands. Does that make sense enough to you all? It's marriage. That's the place where that part of your life can be expressed. I'm not saying you stop being a man or stop being a woman outside of marriage, but you all know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parents. Biblical marriage is where sex is beautiful and fulfilling and glorifying to God and safe. The family, secondly, marriage is where sex and sexuality are to be expressed. Secondly, the family is the central institution for human society. Man needed a compliment. Women need a compliment. God has designed us to eventually leave our families and unite with another to form a new family. And if we wish to honor the Lord, friends, we must do nothing to do harm to the institution of the family. Now again, I've got a big heart here for those who wish they could be involved in a family and singles who wish they could be married, and I understand that, so I'm not putting you down in any form. I'm just drawing the truth from this text. And if you're single, God has great plans for you and great things you can do. And you can have a great life and ministry without ever being married. But for most people, this is the plan. From the creation of woman, we see that God has designed marriage to be one man and one woman united. It is not trite. Some people say this as a joke, and I don't mean it as a joke whatsoever. God could have done this in a lot of different ways. He could have brought the man a lot of women. He did not do so. He could have made many men and just one woman. He did not do so. He could have brought the man another man. He did not do so. He could have united the man with an animal. He did not do so. God has made it clear that God's plan is one man and one woman to form the family. 
Now, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1, both the man and the woman are made in the image of God. Both of them have equal worth, but men and women are different from one another. We are designed to complement and fulfill where the other is different. Now, as I said, there's so many things that, that, that we've seen that, that are hard here, so I, I just, again, want to be very sensitive here. When I say one man, one woman, obviously the Lord has allowed that one spouse passes away, one can be married to another person. We'll talk about marriage and divorce and things later as well, but and remarriage, those will come into our discussion at some form. But those things are the result of the fall, divorce and that kind of stuff. I'll see death and needing to remarry even is the result of the fall. Last thing here is there's reasons for us to draw from this passage that the role of leadership in the family is given by God to the man. Is it, it's not because men are stronger. It's not because men are smarter. It's not because men are better in any way. Oftentimes we are not any of the three. It has to do with responsibility. God made the man and God gave the man the job of working and keeping the garden. God gave the man the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had the man name the animals with authority. Then God brought the woman to the man not to be his leader but to be his helper. And the man named the woman. The man bears responsibility for the tasks that the Lord has given. The woman bears responsibility to help the man fulfill those tasks. This is God's good design. And if we try to throw off that design, we are in rebellion against God. Now that last bit stirs a lot of emotion for folks, I realize. This is not, this is not because the design is bad, by the way. It's because so many people have seen the design abused, and I'm guessing you've seen the design abused. We've seen the impact of sin on our relationships time and time again. And next time that we're here, not this Sunday, the 13th, because we're going to be at Mount Charleston on the 13th, but on the, on the 20th, Lord willing, we will begin to look at the impact of sin and how harmful our rebellion against God has been to our understanding of who we are and what we're supposed to be. But for now, here's what I would ask you to do. Let the word just say what it said, and then we'll look together to see how to put it into practice in a fallen world. We will never allow for and we will never tolerate abuse as Christians. We will see men and women as equal in worth, equal in value, even as we see that we do play different roles. And I believe that we will see the goodness in the Lord's design. And I want to close with a simple gospel reminder for you guys. We've all fought against God's design in our lives, haven't we? One way or another. You fought God, I fought God. And fighting against God breaks our lives, and it puts us in a place of opposition to God. But God sent Jesus, God the Son, to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve and to begin the process of reshaping our lives into what God designed them to be in the first place. So if you want life, you must come to Jesus in faith and in repentance, and he'll forgive you, and he'll begin to shape your life back into God's perfect design for you. So I would invite you, if all this sounds crazy, or if you've been fighting against God, come to Jesus and find life. Then a lot of the stuff will start to make sense. It'll take time, but God will reshape you. Let's pray together, friends.
Lord, even now, we find ourselves sitting here, hearing these words. I pray it hasn't been tedious, but I pray that we've seen your word faithfully, fairly, well. I pray that we really are beginning to see and understand what it is to honor you. Lord, I would plead with you to help us get it right. Take away anything that I've done incorrectly. I'm a weak person. I'm frail and I mess things up regularly. But Lord, I would pray that you will make make us people who see your design and embrace it. Where people have been hurt because others have sinned against them or because they've sinned in their own pasts, I pray that you would help them to find peace and grace in Christ. And Lord, where we need um, to repent and come to Jesus, I pray that we'll do it. That's our, plan. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen.